0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about adoption and heroism. Whether a woman who carries an unwanted pregnancy to term and gives the child for adoption is performing a heroic act. I'm hoping this wraps up what's turned out to be a series here recently on the question of abortion, at least for a time. I know I raised some questions last year, but just this year alone in inappropriate conversations, 59 and 60, and also recently in 72, I've dealt with issues related to the abortion debate that has gone on in America for well, just about my entire lifetime. And I think that the one thing I haven't done in the midst of discussing this is share my point of view. I've mentioned before that I don't consider myself to be either pro-life or pro-choice, but what does that mean exactly? And I guess if I were to try to boil it down into a nutshell, it would be this, that I believe in the power of being chosen and I believe in adoption. Put it this way, um, I've heard people say before, you know, uh, the uh, bumper sticker type slogan, thank your mother for being pro-life. Well, what if your mother wasn't pro-life? What would the opposite of that idea be? Would that idea be that there was something wrong somehow if your mother was pro-choice politically and chose to give birth to you and bring you home and raise you and take care of you and, you know, make you in every conceivable way part of the family See, I got a problem with that, because from my perspective, it isn't necessarily a great compliment to a mother's love for a child that she be pro-life. The pro-life mother uh, isn't making any sort of affirmative decision, isn't making the same kind of personal statement, isn't saying, I choose you. And see, that's, that's kind of an important difference. Because I believe that if we want to go down this avenue of talking about maternal responsibility. And what's different and special about the mother's relationship with a child, then I think that it's important to acknowledge that the pro choice mother perhaps makes a much more compelling statement to her child, because she chose to give birth when she didn't have to. She didn't have to by either the laws in the country in which we live, or she didn't have to by the way that she's chosen to acknowledge those laws. Because just because it, abortion might be illegal in one country or another doesn't mean that it's impossible to obtain, and we've covered that pretty thoroughly in previous and appropriate conversations. Now, for me, the power of being chosen is pretty important, and I don't like the simplistic either-or that's been presented to us from abortion politics, both in the media and from the polar opposite groups. So what does this mean from my personal perspective? Well, I've never... I've never had to consider the question of abortion. I've never had an unwanted child. I've never gotten a woman pregnant in a a situation that wasn't intentional. Uh, Every time that my wife has been pregnant, we wanted that to happen. And so it creates a different dynamic for me that I try not to be too judgmental of those who deal with the difficult challenge of unwanted pregnancy, because I know that I've never been there myself. I do know what would have happened if we had been in that situation. If for whatever reason we were you know, deciding to stop at a certain point, and before birth control methods could be changed or some other you know uh, life change could occur that would have you know put a cap to our childbearing years, my wife became pregnant again. At no point was abortion going to be on our menu. So if you look at that from the perspective of how does my family live its life, we look very pro pro life, right? We look pro life because that's how we've decided. To make our choices. Now, when I word it that way, we look very pro-choice too, but I'm a firm believer that if you would always only make one choice, you're really not choosing. I've spoken to this a couple of times with the way the United States electoral system works. And the presidential uh, cap on two terms that was placed by constitutional amendment after the FDR years, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt participated in one in four presidential elections. And I think a lot of people in the United States began to feel like we might be very close to an emperor-type system, that if you can freely elect a president over and over and over again for the remainder of his natural life, is he still a president or are we having the same kind of presidential elections that they had in Iraq during the Saddam Hussein era? I mean, countries that are uh, under the uh, you know, fist of a dictator often still have elections. They just have elections where you already know who's going to win it. So I believe that if there is no real choice, if the moment of choice occurs and the decision has already been determined and that there is no force that can change that, um, then you are you really pro-choice? That's why I view these terms as being almost completely meaningless, that I can be claimed by either one of those groups from a you know, philosophical perspective, and those same groups would likely reject me for the political approach that I use to the issue. Let me just put another issue out there to give a sense of why I think this is you know too simple and why I don't like the politics that we've been presented. What about birth control? One of the arguments that you have when it comes to the pro-life position is, of course, the Roman Catholic position, which is opposed to abortion and birth control. But there's another much bigger slice that believes that some forms of birth control are okay and other forms of birth control are completely unacceptable. And abortion as birth control is, of course, in the completely unacceptable you know, side of that spectrum. But a lot of times what you hear is the suggestion that one of the problems with abortion are the future lives of those children who do not get born as a result of abortion, the non births that abortion generates to which I ask the question, what about the non births that birth control generates? If personhood and the future lifespan of unborn children is so crucial, at what point does the more liberal position from the pro-life camp fall apart? Because Birth control or even celibacy pose the exact same threat to the non born that abortion does. Now, abortion is, of course, a much more violent answer, a much more clumsy answer, one that is generally unsatisfactory for everyone involved, including the woman who seeks the abortion. But if you leave all of those um, aspects out, whether they be truly just emotional or indeed a genuine response to violent sort of behavior, you still have the same problem. Is it the pro-life position that everyone who could have been born should have been born? And I call to mind once again, the graph that's not hard to find online that shows the number of millions of people on this planet throughout history and pretty much charts it from roughly the time of Christ until now. And you can see that despite some politically conservative talk about the danger of the, you know, the, the, redu- the reduction in the birth rate, that Americans aren't having kids at the same rate that a lot of rival nations are, that despite all that sort of talk, the world is producing, um, reproducing at a, at a massive rate and at a greater rate of increase in the last 200 years than at any point before in human history. So a lot of children who could have been born are being born. But if the rest of them, all children prevented by things like birth control or voluntary celibacy or people opting not to get married and therefore maybe not to have kids as well as not getting married. If all of those children were born too, we would probably be facing an apocalyptic situation. Now, there are many who argue that our current population control situation is not as dire as it's been advertised and that the planet can certainly sustain 10, 12, 20, 30 billion people. I'm not sure I'm persuaded by that. But even if I was persuaded by that, how well could the planet sustain if we had the birth rates that we did 500, 600 years ago with the base population that we do now? None of this, of course, is a justification for abortion. It's simply pointing out that there's a fine line there between mourning the lives that do not get lived due to abortion and seemingly not mourning the lives that do not get lived due to birth control or perhaps being upset over the lives that do not get lived due to chemical forms of birth control, but not barrier forms of birth control. You begin to see the problem, right? So I'm going to sidestep that entire issue and focus instead on what I would do. What would I do if I were young and unmarried and um, had a, a momentary lapse of judgment and found myself in a situation where I had an unwanted pregnancy in my life to deal with and that I was not perhaps prepared or equipped or willing for whatever reason to become a father and set up a house and the woman that I'd gotten pregnant was also unwilling perhaps even more so then what would we do and although I don't feel I have any power necessarily over what someone else does to and with her body um, whatever influence I do have I probably would be in favor of the notion of having the child and giving the child up for adoption. Now, I don't think this is something we can force on people, and I'll explain why as we proceed through the show. But if someone were willing to do it, if there were a volunteer for that, I think it would be a very good thing. I think that there's risk involved. There's certainly pain involved. But it's it's a, a very virtuous sacrifice. And what I want to get to as we kind of proceed through this is an essay that I wrote probably good 15, 20 years ago, when I made the statement, the claim actually, that having this child and giving it up for adoption is not just a good thing to do. It's not even just a great thing to do. Because of the risk and sacrifice involved, because of the pain that's willing to be ignored and overcome, and because of the life-giving nature of the act, it's perhaps a saintly thing to do. Now, I chose those words intentionally, almost provocatively, because I was dealing with a group of people who were by and large Roman Catholic and Roman Catholicism at the time did not have much patience for anybody who viewed adoption as something special. It was a requirement. It was expected. It was the only thing to do. And therefore, viewing it as in any way heroic was rubbing directly against the politics of the time. And that is the response I got. But the evangelical response has been the same. In fact, what I think I want to do right now before I proceed is something I've never done before. I want to put in a sound clip quoting a previous inappropriate conversation. Now, I usually drop in clips to promote other podcasts that I enjoy listening to and uh, music, you know, along the way to introduce different drummers. But I want to do something where I'm literally quoting my own voice. So let me introduce it so that I can draw that distinction between now and, uh, you know, three, four weeks ago. Uh, in the program entitled, truth or consequences for christians i quoted the uh, stand to reason website and gregory kokel's article about judah jarvis thompson and a defense of abortion and near the end of that article he really encapsulated the kind of response i've gotten from protestant christians before on the question of adoption and heroism here is uh my quoting his article The responsibility a mother has toward her children supersedes any claim she has to personal liberty. If it doesn't, if Thompson's arguments succeed, then release Susan Smith. Release the deadbeat Florida tourists. If parenthood is an act of heroism, if mothers have no moral obligation to the children they bear, if child-rearing is a burden above and beyond the call of duty, then no child is safe in the womb or out. It is specifically this issue of heroism that I intend to address when I return to the concept of adoption in a few weeks. But what we have is a leading thinker in the pro-life movement making the argument that bearing a child, and even bearing a child and giving it for adoption, cannot be viewed as heroic. In his mind, it's an obligation. So if you're hearing what I'm hearing there, you're hearing loud and clear the conservative position, the conservative pro-life position, is that adoption cannot be heroic. This, of course, has shifted recently. We started hearing it from groups like the Mormons, and I think we're hearing it more and more from other pro-life groups who've realized that if you're not going to encourage people to adopt, especially if adoption is the other option from abortion, where adopting and giving the child up to another family who wants it is... a uh, a better way to go. If you're not going to encourage that, then you might as well get out of the abortion politics business altogether. So that's where we're heading. But how do I want to present this argument? Well, how did I present this argument so many years ago? I presented this argument by leveraging the ideas of our different drummer, Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> St. Thomas Aquinas has his name because of uh, where he was born. Um, he's St. Thomas of Aquinas. It's not a surname, that uh, last name. Instead, it's an adjective depicting the place that he was born, the castle that he was born in, in that particular part of Italy. Much of modern philosophy, quoting Wikipedia, was conceived as a reaction against or an agreement with the ideas of Thomas Aquinas, particularly in the areas of ethics, natural law, metaphysics and political theory his psychological concepts contribute to the modern understanding of resurrection and did so in the 1200s something like 900 years ago when you would expect the understandings of psychology in particular to be very different than they are today aquinas was a theologian He never considered himself a philosopher and criticized philosophers whom he saw as falling short of the true and proper wisdom to be found in Christian revelation. Quoting, he did, however, have tremendous respect for Aristotle, as do I, and so much so that a lot of what he wrote in the Summas, Summa Theologica in particular, cite Aristotle as simply the philosopher, capital T, capital P, the philosopher. The author appreciates that perspective. Aquinas viewed theology, or sacred doctrine, as a science, the raw material of which consists written scripture and the tradition of the Catholic Church. Faith and reason, while distinct but related, are the two primary tools for processing the data of theology, a kind of a combination of those two tools, really driving theology now, as a Protestant, I'm not necessarily taken by the idea that you know, Scripture would be viewed as being equal to the tradition of the Catholic Church. To me, Scripture must be supreme and superior over any traditions, particularly the traditions of such a political entity historically as the Catholic Church. But there's a connection to be had between the Protestant theology of John Wesley and this particular encapsulation of how Aquinas viewed theology – Because both men refer to the importance of scripture, tradition, faith, and reason. There have been a couple of different drummers recently, particularly in areas where the writings of an individual have been influential in politics and religion simultaneously, where I've offered a great deal of disclaimer. And I thought I might end up doing that here, but I don't think I will. Part of the reason is I'm going to avoid the areas of Aquinas' writings where I disagree with him. And part of it is because maybe in my advancing years, I've gotten some perspective that has made me somewhat more sympathetic to things in Aquinas' work that I view as mistakes. Just to touch on that briefly, I think anyone who brings a modern understanding to what Aquinas wrote in the 1200s is making a mistake it is important for us to cut Aquinas a certain amount of slack based on the quality of the science that was available to him at the time, that if he is trying to incorporate logic and reason and science, he is really stuck with the best available data. So if Aquinas made certain um, decisions related to sexual ethics that seemed to be based on the assumption that a woman had one egg and a man had one sperm, then you could understand why he might be... Um, mistaken, or even look a little foolish in light of what our modern scientific understanding is, why he might have taken a conclusion to scripture that we would completely disagree with today. As a Christian, I believe that we've been given more light as we've advanced through time. And it's important for us to stay in touch with the wisdom of our forefathers, but it's also important for us to understand that the wisdom that we have gained, the revelation that has continued to be provided to us, through advancing knowledge and advancing scientific methodology. Well, we need to employ both of those things. But it's unfair to a man like Thomas Aquinas to hold him accountable for knowledge that was not scientifically available at the time. So calling him a different drummer is by no means um, siding with every one of his arguments. Instead, what I want to do is call Aquinas out as a different drummer to side with his methodology for making those arguments. Specifically, the kind of arguments that he used in the Summa Theologica. I want to quote an online article written by a professor named Joseph G. Travick. Um, The website was uh, endofthemodernworld.blogspot.com and an article called How to Read Articles in Aquinas' Summa. Here's quoting the author Travick. Among the obvious things for many philosophy and theology professors is how you read an article in Aquinas' Summa. We don't find it at all confusing, or, more precisely, we've forgotten what it is like to be a student, when so many things seem so bewildering. We have forgotten that there was a time when Aquinas wasn't so obvious to us, or at least when his literary styles were not. With these thoughts in mind, I thought that for the benefit of anyone who is uncertain about how to read an article— in the Summa, I would post the text of a handout on this topic that I have given to some of my classes. Aquinas uses the same format in other texts, such as De Verite and De Potentia, and with his commentary on um, Peter Lombard's sentences, there are other of his texts where the format is quite different. But sticking with Summa, in the handout, I have included a fictional article that has to do with Armando Galarraga the Detroit Tigers pitcher, who lost his bid for a perfect game last summer when umpire Jim Joyce blew a call. I wanted to have something very short on the handout as an example and decided to make up my own article. Since I prepared the handout right after the Galarraga incident, it seemed like a good topic. It's dumb, but it serves the purpose. The basic parts of an article are as such. 1. Question. 2. Objections. 3. On the contrary. Four, I respond that. Five, replies to the objections. Here is a made-up article to give you an idea. Question. Did Armando Galarraga get a raw deal? Objection one. It would seem that Detroit Tigers pitcher Armando Galarraga did not get a raw deal when first base umpire Jim Joyce called Jason Donald safe at first and spoiled Galarraga's bid for a perfect game. For Major League Baseball Commissioner Bud Selig has argued that human error is a part of baseball. Objection 2. Further, if anyone got a raw deal, it was Jim Joyce, because, as Augustine says in Contra Omnis 2, Part 3, it is not he who is misjudged who is despised by the fans, but he who misjudges. On the contrary, Tigers manager Jim Leland says, The players are human, the umpires are human, the managers are human. Which can take to mean that everyone always gets a raw deal by virtue of being human. Hence, Galarraga got a raw deal because he is a player, and all players are human, as has been said. I answer that. Raw deal can be predicated both by the cause and of the effect. It can be predicated of the cause insofar as the cause is what is said to bring the raw deal about and it can be predicated of the effect insofar as the effect is the recipient of the raw deal. We conclude, then, that as recipient of the raw deal, it is certain that Galarraga got a raw deal. Reply to Objection 1. While human error can be part of baseball, it does not prove that Galarraga did not get a raw deal, but only that raw deals are only part of baseball. Reply to Objection 2. There is nothing to prevent he who is misjudged and he who misjudges from both getting raw deals as a result of the misjudgment. Moreover, Contra Omnis is spuriously attributed to Augustine. Do you love Star Trek? How about a good scary movie? Do sexy warrior princesses haunt your dreams? Then you'll love Starbase 66, the international Star Trek horror and fantasy podcast. Join Rick, Karen, and Kennedy each week as they discuss your favorite and not-so-favorite movies and TV shows. Only on the Simply Syndicated 21st Century Media Network. Getting back to Trabik's article, he goes through an explanation of the different parts of his example. But I'll skip down to the point where he says um, that the explanation itself was very basic. And if you're interested in a more sophisticated explanation, have a look at Otto Bird's article, How to Read an Article of the Summa, in The New Scholasticism 27, published in 1953, pages 129 to 159. By the way, you may have noticed in my made-up article that I mentioned Augustine's contra omnis and objection to this also is made up. As far as I know, Augustine never wrote anything by that title. Also as far as I know, Augustine never said, it is not he who is misjudged who is despised by the fans, but he who misjudges. I add this disclaimer only so as not to upset any Augustine scholars. Okay, I only gave you the humorous example from Professor Trabik as a way of introducing Thomas Aquinas as a different drummer and to uh, extol his technique for argument more than any particular argument in and of itself. And what I did back a few years ago when I wrote an article I called Adoptive Samaritanism was pick up on the concepts of Judith Jarvis Thompson and the idea of of good Samaritanism versus minimally decent Samaritanism when it comes to unwanted pregnancy, and abortion, and adoption. And I thought it would be a good idea to take a fairly Roman Catholic construct like the Summa Theologica, because I was going to be having conversations on this issue with people who came to me from a distinctly Catholic perspective. Um, For that reason, I, I use the term saintly. We'll get to that here in just one second. And I used the technique of Thomas Aquinas in probably making an argument that Aquinas himself would, in places, strongly disagree with. But I did so because I thought that it was important for us to unpack some of the emotion. And by using a much more convoluted essay form, it would seem less like a political argument and more like an educational treatise, which was one of the things I was shooting for. And my goal, if I succeeded then or if I have any success still today, was to make the point that we ought to be embracing the idea of adoption as an alternative to an abortion, but the only way you can do that is to celebrate it as heroic. Here's the argument. Question. Whether a woman who carries an unwanted pregnancy to term and gives the child for adoption is performing a saintly act. Objection 1. The woman cannot be performing a saintly act due to the sin she would have committed in order to carry an unwanted pregnancy in the first place. The overwhelming majority of unwanted pregnancies result from promiscuous extramarital sexual relations. A pregnancy resulting from such activities is, at best, careless, and more accurately, negligent. For a woman to conclude that she didn't want the child in her womb belies every notion we have of characteristic sainthood— thereby making the resulting action anything but saintly. Objection 2. The woman is performing a morally neutral act because behaviors dictated by natural law lack the miraculous qualities we associate with sainthood. A woman who is pregnant has no natural option to carrying the pregnancy to term. Even if term is miscarriage, her only natural option is to follow her reproductive course. Simply avoiding the unnatural option of abortion does not meet the standard of sainthood, which would include taking a stand above and beyond the call of nature. Objection 3. The woman is performing a morally neutral act because she is doing what is easiest and best for her on a personal level. To give birth after becoming pregnant is the easiest course of action for the woman to take. For her, giving up an unwanted child is the most personally preferable course of action to take. Therefore, the woman is not taking an action which requires any significant sacrifice on her part. Objection 4. The woman is performing a morally neutral act because society has every right to expect this behavior from her. Since, as a given, she is already pregnant by means initiated of her own choosing, society has a right to claim a need for the child, making adoption a non-binding necessity. The woman may legally opt to terminate her pregnancy and thereby eliminate the potential for adoption. However, forgoing the opportunity to make the socially preferred choice would make her behavior inadequate or perhaps inappropriate. As a result, someone who avoids inappropriate behavior cannot make any claim that the behavior was consequently saintly in nature. Objection 5 the woman's act is minimally decent. This is a reference to Judith Jarvis Thompson's A Defense of Abortion, published in many places, including Philosophy and Public Affairs, Volume 1, Number 1, in 1971, pages 47 through 66 in Princeton University Press. Thompson, writing before Roe v. Wade, introduced the concept of minimally decent Samaritanism to the abortion debate. She concluded that, No U.S. or state law requires minimally decent behavior such as calling an ambulance if you witness an accident, yet abortion legislation forced good Samaritanism on pregnant women. Back to Objection 5. The woman's act is minimally decent, but not saintly, because she is responsible for both the negative and positive aspects of the problem she is solving. While carrying the pregnancy to term and giving the child for adoption, supersede any legal requirements society may have against the woman the degree to which she exceeds moral standards is minimal by saving the life of the unborn child through choosing to bear and adopt she cannot elude her responsibility for placing the child in peril by first becoming pregnant with a child she couldn't keep in effect The woman's actions fall short of saintly, in the same way we wouldn't crown a man as hero for saving a child from a burning building if we learned that he also was a co-conspirator in the arson that started the blaze. In each case, a person judged the circumstances and chose the best possible approach. In each case, the result is only a minimal level of decency. On the Contrary "'Jesus replied, "'A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho "'and fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him, "'and departed, leaving him half dead. "'Now by chance a priest was going down the road, "'and when he saw him he passed on the other side. "'Likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, "'passed on the other side. "'But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was,' And when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved neighbor? To the man who fell among the robbers. Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 36. I answer that a woman who carries an unwanted pregnancy to term and gives the child for adoption does perform a saintly act because she meets and exceeds the standards set by the Good Samaritan as described by Jesus Christ. Aside from generally helping the stranger without any support, From the priest or Levite, the Samaritan primarily took seven actions. One, he showed compassion, empathy for the man. Two, he cared for his physical needs, specifically injuries. Three, he carried him to safety on his transportation. Four, he spent the night at the man's side, on call, so to speak. Five, he paid for his room, approximately two days' pay. 6. Which, in turn, fed him. and 7. He promised to provide necessary future support. Not uncommon in the parables of Christ, the saintly action comes from an atypical source. The Samaritan in the story is a stranger from a community several miles northwest of Jerusalem. More significantly, Jews viewed Samaritans as mixed people many of Jesus' contemporaries held contempt for Samaria. Scripture reveals this clearly in the Gospel according to John. In direct address with Jesus, a Samaritan woman responds to Christ's request for a drink of water, saying, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of water of me, a Samaritan, a woman of Samaria? As John concludes, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John chapter 4 verse 9 Clearly the good samaritan was risking scorn if not worse through his effort to help the man left half dead by robbers For a woman carrying an unwanted pregnancy a similar level of scorn is revealed in the rhetoric of objection 1 Although the potential level of scorn facing the samaritan no doubt exceeds the degree for this pregnant woman Many documented cases support the claim that the actual scorn facing this woman certainly could be higher than the simple acceptance of the innkeeper in Jesus' parable. Of the seven actions, there is no doubt that the woman in question meets and exceeds the degree of action performed by the good Samaritan. In deciding to carry the unborn child to term, regardless her reasons, the woman is showing not only compassion and empathy, but considerably more of the latter than the Good Samaritan. The stranger in Jesus' story did all he could, but the woman in this instance has the ability to do more. Simply by burying the child, the woman cares for all of the child's physical needs, not merely a question of injuries. Rather than transporting the child on her beast of burden while walking aside, the woman literally takes the extra burden upon herself, She carries not only the child, but the extra weight she needs to support the child. The Good Samaritan was on call for one evening and night. The woman accepts this responsibility of being on call 24-7 for nine months or possibly longer. Her responsibility includes all feeding, which comes not only from her plate, but from her blood. The two denarii, that the Samaritan left in the innkeeper's hands was a high expense, but it cannot compare to a year of insurance premiums. Even if we make the huge presumption that the woman in question is married to an obstetrician who can provide her with free prenatal examination and even vitamins, the extra expense of food and a radically different wardrobe far outnumber the financial sacrifices made by the Samaritan. The promise to provide necessary future support is the only action that doesn't compare easily between the good Samaritan and the woman in question. After all, giving the child for adoption is, quite evidently, the abdication of future support. The adoption process is more like leaving the half-dead man with the innkeeper and telling him to call an ambulance. However, such an assessment of adoption runs in total contradiction to the point of view accepted equally by both parties in the abortion debate. In fact, the view of adoption as a wonderful option that should be encouraged whenever possible seems to be a lonely point of hypothetical consensus between the so-called pro-choice and pro-life groups. It is ironic that both groups are willing to stand together on such a tenuous proposition. Pro-choice groups seem to recognize the necessity of ignoring pro-life goals of turning this woman's voluntary decision into a legal mandate that would transform every abortion into a bear-and-adopt procedure. Pro-life groups consistently sidestep the family values dilemma posed by how easily adoption allows biological parents to simply wash their hands of child-rearing responsibilities. Of course, Adoption cannot be defined as, as narrowly as these two dilemmas, yet pro-choice groups do prefer to view abortion and adoption as morally equal choices, and pro-life groups do define family values in a biologically nuclear manner that inherently assesses adoption as a necessary evil. This combination reveals how suspect the comparison between the Samaritan's promise and the women's adoption plans truly are. Nevertheless, these misgivings are not among the objections to the question at hand. The reason? None of the ideological groups involved in the issue find adoption offensive. To the contrary, even those who are most hostile to the actions of the woman in question are eager to grant that adoption is inherently good. Therefore, the woman meets and exceeds the degrees of actions performed by the Good Samaritan. As a result, she is performing a saintly act. Reply Objection 1. The manner by which the woman has become pregnant has, at best, a precursory relationship to her decision about whether to carry the child. As a result, this objection is post hoc. Granted, A, a woman who has become pregnant as a result of rape by a man who swears to kill her and kidnap the child after it is born, for example, cannot compare to B, a woman who became pregnant as a result of sexual relations so promiscuous she cannot possibly identify the father. It remains true that the course of action taken after either woman learns she is pregnant creates a value of its own. We may decide that woman A is more saintly than woman B because of the contrast in their experiences. The fact remains, though, that both women are making a positive decision worth celebrating. Furthermore, if objection one is valid, then the woman in this instance is left with an unintended pressure to abort the child. After all, most abortions are performed before society at large is aware of the pregnancy. And Roe versus Wade addresses precisely this privacy issue. If the woman, either A or B, faces the ostracism of a scarlet letter, her probable response is abortion. Therefore, Objection 1 is invalid due to a false assumption that the cause of the pregnancy affects the value of all subsequent decisions, and due to a false appeal to fear in the form of peer pressure that destroys the saintly decision of adoption over abortion precisely by denying it sainthood. Reply Objection 2. Natural law can only be defined accurately as that which occurs in nature. As such, Objection two is a false appeal to natural law because, like it or not, abortion exists. If we presume statistics are true, greater than one million abortions are performed every year in the United States alone. We should presume accuracy, in this case, because pro life groups estimate the numbers to be even higher. Beneath the questions about abortion being morally right or wrong, both sides on the issue take it as a given that abortion exists it has for centuries. The naturalness fallacy applied in Objection 2 would also be used to denounce the use of automobiles and telephones as unnatural, since they have been synthesized by man. Taking the naturalness argument to a logical extreme would conclude that a diabetic woman who uses insulin to stay alive and bear her child would fail any measure of sainthood twice, because her life-saving drug doesn't exist naturally either. Obviously, both abortion and adoption have been natural, and indeed common, options to women for more than 30 years. Therefore, society's preference for one natural option over another natural option makes this particular choice a saintly one. Reply Objection 3. To call childbirth an easy course of action is a gross oversimplification. In fact, most insurance companies view maternity leave, the entire leave, as a disability. The fact that bearing a child creates extra challenges for pregnant women, not faced by women at large, precedes any question about the pain and recuperation associated with the process of giving birth. Even to grant that abortion can also be painful and disabling doesn't change the time frame. Is it easier to make a decision that resolves the immediate conflict in nine months? Or one weekend. At best, we should conclude that neither option, abortion or adoption, is easier than the other. Therefore, objection three is based on the false assumption that one is easier than the other. Presuming to decide which option is best for the woman is even more spurious. First, the tone of objection one raises clear doubts about whether the decision to bear and adopt is best for the woman's position in society. Second. It is tautological to imply that the woman's personal decision lacks inherent value because she made her own choice. After all, a woman who makes a personally preferable decision to abort is unlikely to receive the same morally neutral assessment. Third, the woman who decides to bear and adopt, regardless of her motives, is making an extra sacrifice of time, among other things. Therefore, the woman is making a significant sacrifice even though she obviously makes the decision based upon her own preference. Reply Objection 4 Society does not have any right to expect a woman to deliver a child simply because adoptive parents may be waiting. Society can ask, and society can hope and pray. But Objection 4 makes a false appeal to authority by implying that the woman is obliged in any way, legally or otherwise, to bear a child. To accept Objection 4, as valid, would grant society the right to either A. Kidnap this woman and hold her up to nine months against her will until the baby has been delivered. Or B. Perform an emergency cesarean section operation to remove and incubate the unborn child without regard for the woman's consent to the surgery. Or C. Enact a binding legal mandate to guarantee that the woman's behavior meets the standard. Objection 4 presumes to be correct. While A and B seem progressively outrageous, C can be described as both the principal plank and the pro-life platform, and the first step needed to initiate the other two options. After all, a woman who is forced against her will to carry an unwanted child to term is only given option A or B. Option C only exists as a legal, meaning perhaps a non-criminal way, of forcing the woman to choose between option A or B while maintaining the illusion of voluntary behavior where it wouldn't truly exist. Furthermore, the woman in question obviously has motivations that supersede any desire to please society with appropriate behavior. Objection three includes the trite observation that the woman is making a decision on her own terms, which she considers best. Since society's ideal would include her keeping and raising the child in her own nuclear family, The woman is clearly not allowing society's ideals to dictate appropriate behavior to her. Therefore, taking the premise of objection four as a given, the woman is engaging in behavior that is saintly in nature. Reply Objection 5. Presuming that every pregnancy is an act of will by the woman, as Objection 5 does, is a post-hoc fallacy. The conclusion that the woman is responsible for both the negative and positive aspects of the problem— begs the question of how she became pregnant, and inaccurately implies the pregnancy to be an act of will. Even if the woman became pregnant through wanton promiscuity, her role in this analogy would be less an arsonist and more someone who smokes in bed and therefore starts an accidental blaze. Frankly, society does celebrate the heroism of individuals who are able to save the children in such unfortunate and self-inflicted circumstances. Objection 5 is valid only if the woman engaged in sexual activity precisely with the goal of becoming pregnant with an unwanted child. Otherwise, the comparison to someone who intentionally sets something on fire, by definition an arsonist, simply does not work. The rhetoric of Objection 5 easily supports the conclusion that the woman in question is performing a saintly act. After all, if she is minimally decent— doing enough, regardless how little, to earn credit for performing a good act where she willfully tried to become pregnant with an unwanted child. It becomes that much easier to praise her if the pregnancy itself was a genuine surprise. And we can take as a given that unwanted pregnancies are, virtually by definition, a surprise to the woman. Evidently, Objection 5 is invalidated because it provides for a level of minimally decent Samaritanism. To make such a lower level of Samaritanism function, Objection 5 would have to provide circumstantial evidence that the woman in question engaged in behavior that falls short of the Good Samaritans. As shown earlier, the woman's only shortcoming is pursuing adoption in the first place. As concluded earlier, supporters of Objection 5 do not want to attack the adoption process, which renders the complaint itself void. Since this woman's actions supersede the Good Samaritan in every other regard— Objection 5's faulty analogy shows that the woman's decision is at least more than minimally decent. She's also very bold yes. and um, not afraid to back down. I mean, she stands up to Tarkin right. on the bridge of his ship yep, she does. and says some, something to the extent of... Um, the more you tighten your grip, the more systems will slip through your fingers. He's, like, towering over her. Oh, Data, yeah. she's and Tarkin I think that was a nice choice, too. Not only is Carrie Fisher very smart uh-huh. and um, articulate, but she's small. So it's a yes. nice contrast to see this small woman be so independent and fierce, you yeah. know, standing up against something that's so much bigger than her. <laughs> I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And when you're not listening to this glorious podcast, we would love to have you listen to ours, the Anomaly Podcast. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y (laughs) podcast.com. I'd like to draw a couple of conclusions. First one of them by way of footnote. In addressing the question of the differences between minimally decent Samaritanism and good Samaritanism, Thompson's view becomes interesting. It illuminates, in fact, a stunning irony. Many of the same people calling for a return to legislative good Samaritanism with regard to pregnancy, the standard before Roe versus Wade, also deny that a barren adopt choice earns the saintly quality that such laws should mandate. In other words, if it's only, if the only reason you bear and adopt is because you have to, would we be willing to credit women for making a positive life affirming sacrifice, or would they only be doing what they're told? Here's my conclusion. Virtually all the pressure from both pro-life and pro-choice groups about the adoption option have been proactive, rather than reactive. One side pushes adoption as the only valid positive choice. The other side pushes adoption as an equally valid option and nothing more, a, a key balance, so to speak, supporting the scales of choice, and neither has much to say after the fact. With all the negativity surrounding the abortion debate, no one should be surprised that neither side of the argument spends too much time seeking positive aspects for all of us to celebrate. Yet. The answer to the question whether a woman who carries an unwanted pregnancy to term and gives the child for adoption is performing a saintly act clearly calls for society to fill the vacuum surrounding those women who've made bear and adopt decisions. Rather than seeking women who regret the decision to abort, pro-life groups could deliver a more persuasive message directly to the target audience by pointing to these women whose bear and adopt approach must be considered heroic. Rather than essentially avoiding the issue of adoption, pro-choice groups should also honor these women who chose to bear and adopt, if only to highlight the special sacrifices that these women make and thereby argue that heroism cannot be legislated. Unfortunately, these two subtle aspects of the relationship between adoption and abortion speak volumes about the issue and why it is so problematic. Both sides are hesitant to embrace very openly the women who bear and adopt, for fear of losing ideological ground. Both sides need to learn that viewing adoption as a saintly gesture may be the key to resolving or at least improving the social dilemma posed by unwanted pregnancy. I know that I speak probably a lot more about abortion than I do about adoption. Probably the reason is that that's where the action is from a political debate perspective. And that's a shame because if I'm right, And I'm honest with myself and my view that people who rather than kill an unborn child would choose to spend the time and energy to give birth to that child and then give it to a family who is desperate to have children because they cannot have children of their own. If I am right that that is truly an act of heroism, then I probably ought to speak more about adoption than I do. I'll take that under advisement. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com, and show notes are enabled with comments at the website http colon slash slash inappropriate dot podbean dot com. Thanks for listening.